There's no other way I could begin this morning than to say to you, singing that song, I'm happy today, for me, just flooded my mind with memories and also brought tears, I must tell you. That is an easy song to sing. And so we taught that song to Romanians. We lived there for two years, and we were privileged to be there from 93 to 95 in those early days when we had so many Bible studies, people were so interested. There were days when we couldn't keep up with all the folks who wanted to study. And there was also a day when they were responding to the message of the gospel. And there were many baptisms in those early days. And so what we would do is when someone got into the bathtub, which is where we baptized folks, uh, they had good-sized bathtubs and you could fill them up really high. When they came out of the watery grave in the bathtub and stood up, everybody that was gathered around in the bathroom would start singing. And the song that we got to where we sang every time was, I'm happy today. And they sang it in English because it was that easy to sing. And all the verses are the same, except you change one little word. And then at the end, you put them all together. And I can tell you, it was a wonderful time. And every time I sing that song, it reminds me of several very specific people whose faces just come to my mind. I think of Gabby Ockvost, because when she came up out of that bathtub, she started singing herself to the top of her lungs. I'm happy today. And everybody joined in. And so it was repeatedly, as God blessed us with an overflowing abundance of folks who wanted to hear and respond. I must tell you that 17 years later, a lot of those people have left the Lord. Some of them stole from us. Many of them lied and cheated. The devil is alive and well. But there's a nucleus of folks over there that really understood who Jesus was. There's a strong nucleus that have remained faithful and have been through all of the tortures and torments Satan had to throw at them. And if I had time this morning, I could tell you two hours worth of stories of what those people have dealt with at the hands of their own people and their government and the news media as they've been persecuted for standing for something that's right. And they're still strong. A lot of them have left. But when we sang that song today, I'm thinking about the ones that are still standing. I'm thinking of Marianne, the cab driver, whose wife was baptized first, the one I just talked about, who sang coming out of the tub. That lady influenced more people than anybody else. And her husband was so upset with her. 
when I came to have Bible studies at her house, which was every week because she'd invite three or four people, several others would come. We all had uh, Gabby helping us find people to study with. Her husband would walk out the door, not even greet us, because he didn't want us there. Over a period of time, he started at least staying in his own house, but he'd go to the back bedroom and work on the computer and close the door. And sometimes we'd stay long enough he had to come to the kitchen because he was hungry. And the kitchen was right next to the living room. So he got a little closer, and then eventually he ended up bringing his food into the room where we were studying and listening. And I'm, so, I'm happy to tell you that Marion was eventually converted, and he's the strongest preacher of the gospel we have in Romania. And I would match him with any of you in his Bible knowledge. And he's less than 12 years old in the gospel. The man has grown remarkably. I'm happy today. And you should have heard Gabby singing when he was baptized. Well, you've had some tough things here lately. I'm sure glad this meeting wasn't scheduled for last Sunday. And I'm sorrowing with you, and I'm glad Doug and Becky are here, and I know their children are so thankful to have them here. But what a reason to have to come. And challenges like that are going to face us. That and a whole lot worse. And in any of us who've lived any length of time have shed plenty of tears over the challenges that have come our way I suspect we could give testimonies from these older folks in this audience and they could tell you about the challenges of this life and even things that have happened inside congregations that would just break your heart. So my question is, in the midst of all of that, can we find the same wonderful attitude the Apostle Paul displayed in this passage? That's the question. He said in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. This one thing I do. Forgetting the things that are past, stretching out to the things that are ahead, I press toward the prize for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You heard the reading earlier. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to challenges and difficulties and problems. He faced more than his share. Prior to becoming a Christian, he himself provided the problems as he gave his voice to putting Christians to death because he was firmly convinced they were the scourge of the earth. And then when he himself was finally convinced that Jesus truly was the Christ, the transformation of his life was practically unique. But I'm convinced that God does not want that to be unique. He wants it for me as well. Paul said in verses 7 and 8, the things that were important to me before are not important anymore. 
In fact, if I were to compare them, Jesus Christ compared to anything else, this over here is like garbage. It's worthless. And I would say to David and Jenny Barler, if losing your first floor and all that's in it will help you get this notion in your mind better, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. And I pray it for myself. It's when we get to thinking that anything else in this life, anything, I don't care what it is, is more important than the one thing we have just stepped one step back from where we ought to be. That's what Paul's trying to get to us in this passage. There isn't anything else compared to that. So if it comes to losing anything else, it's a small matter compared to the one thing. So, I ask you, can we get such a vision? Can Americans in the 21st century have such a notion of life? I suggest to you we have greater challenges than Paul. We have the challenge of the most dangerous thing there is. The thing God warned the Israelites about when they went into the land of Canaan after they'd wandered for 40 years. He said, here's what I'm concerned about. You're going to get in there and have all this stuff and you're going to forget me. And that's exactly what they did. And that's our challenge, beloved. It's not having to face persecutions where people beat up on you and throw you in prison and throw rocks at you and try to kill you physically. Paul faced every bit of that, didn't he? No, it's the more insidious challenges where Satan gets you so distracted and me with everything else but the one thing. That we do not have such a single-minded devotion. And may I say to you, our topic the next three days is going to be why the evidence of the natural world testifies so loudly and clearly to the existence of God. But may I suggest to you, Christian, that the greatest testimony to the God of heaven is the life of a Christian it's like this. And the greatest detriment to the cause of our Lord is someone who claims to be a Christian and does not focus on the one thing as if it were the only thing that matters. And folks see it. And they say, that's a Christian? And I'm talking to me. You want to give a grand testimony to the God of heaven? Then you live your life in such a way that there isn't anything in this world that matters compared to pleasing Him. And let it show because it's so deep inside. That's what Paul's telling us. Is that even possible? Turn to Ephesians 3. And let's listen to the Apostle. And you ask me if this is possible then for yourself. 
I want to read this prayer beginning in verse 14. And I would beg of you that you let this prayer be for you as I'm going to let it be for me this morning. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all, all ages, world without end. Is it possible? power that works in us, beloved, is beyond anything we can even dream about. As God works through us. We can become this devoted as well. So that for us, if there were church issues here in this church that just destroyed you from the inside out and broke your hearts, there's still nothing to stop you from focusing on the one thing. We can still win through Christ Jesus. I pray for that attitude for every Christian. So I want to take a little side trip here. And the only purpose of this, it doesn't need to become the sermon. I hope it becomes just a little piece to help us visualize having our lives taken over by one thing. There was a book written some years ago by Lloyd Douglas, the same author who wrote The Robe. Some of you have read that maybe, seen the movie. Would you please read the book and not look at the movie? God gave us a book, not a movie. He wrote another book that was called The Magnificent Obsession. Maybe you've heard of it. I'm not trying to say I recommend everything about that book. But there is a message there that I want to share with you. In the early part of the book, you're introduced to the two major characters. One of them is a medical doctor named Hudson. And he's known for being a marvelous heart surgeon and saving people's lives. The other was a fellow named Bobby Merrick, who the best you could say for him was that he was a playboy. Everything about his life was devoted to causing problems and fooling around with useless stuff. Very wealthy, but a totally debauched life. Well, both of those fellows happened to be in the same lake in this story. Dr. Hudson had a heart attack. Bobby Merrick got in a terrible boat accident because he was acting up as an idiot, as usual. And both of them needed the same piece of equipment to resuscitate them. And the piece of equipment was taken to Bobby Merrick. And he was saved. Dr. Hudson died. That's how the book starts. 
And I'll tell you right now, I'm not telling you the end of the story because I want you to read the book. But the rest of the book tells the story of how Bobby Merrick becomes aware of whose life was lost that day when his was saved. And all that he learns about Dr. Hudson. And I will tell you what he learned from person after person after person. Bobby Merrick learned that Dr. Hudson lived his life by the Sermon on the Mount. So there were lots of people who would come to him for help, and not only would he help them physically as a medical doctor, but he would help them in all kinds of other ways. And always he would say to them, you are not to tell anyone about this. You remember what Matthew 6 said? When you do your alms, do not do them before men to be seen of them. But you, when you do your alms, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And our God who sees in secret will reward you openly. Dr. Dr. Hudson lived by that rule. And there were hundreds of people. Nobody ever knew he had helped until after he died. And they started coming out of the woodwork. And Bobby Merrick started learning about these people. Eventually came in touch with Dr. Hudson's wife. In fact, I'll tell you how he got in touch with her. He was in another accident in which she got hurt so badly that she lost her eyesight, thanks to him. What happened in this story, ladies and gentlemen, is that Bobby Merrick, the playboy, the useless individual, gradually began to realize there's more to life than what I'm doing. And he started turning himself in a direction of being a useful contributing human being. And over time, it became a magnificent obsession. To the point that at the end of the story, he participates in his obsession in the most marvelous way. And now you've got to read it. But here's my point today. I don't care where you are, Christian, in your development as a child of God. Whatever stage you're in, you can reach another level of pure, utter devotion to the one thing so that it becomes an obsession. Obsession we think of as a bad word. It is not. Not if it's given to God. I think Philippians 3 is a description of an obsession. With Paul, nothing else matters. So if it meant losing all his past friends, if it means his family turning against him, if it means people starting to come after him to try to kill him, if it means folks deserting him who are even supposed Christians and stabbing him in the back, nothing stopped him. If it meant saying at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, everybody's deserted me. I'm alone in the presence of Caesar. But God's with me. He was still with the one thing. I challenge you, Christian. And there's a good test to give yourself. It's to test yourself when you're alone. You want to really find out what you're made of? 
then examine yourself when there's nobody else around, nobody knows one thing except you and God. Then you'll find out how real your devotion is. And I'd suggest we go about it this way. I pray for congregations of saints who are absolutely and utterly devoted to the Word of God. Here's a good test. Is the one thing an obsession with you to the point that you cannot go one day without letting God speak to you? Because it's too important. I want you to look at Matthew 4 and listen to Jesus here. We're just going to pick out a point out of this particular passage where Jesus was tempted by Satan. Every Bible student knows this story. The three temptations of Jesus. But maybe you've not noticed this, maybe as fervently as I'd like for you to. In verse 3, he said, Satan did, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's two things I want to say to you about that verse. Jesus' answer. First is, he quoted Scripture in answer to Satan. May I suggest to you, child of God, you don't stand a chance against Satan unless you have God's Scripture. You don't stand a chance. That's like you going against the Iron Man times ten. You don't stand a chance. That's why we must fill ourselves with the Word of God. Jesus Christ as a man. Folks, it's as a man that he was tempted. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. It was as a man Jesus was tempted... And as a man, he quoted Scripture against Satan. You think I need that? I don't stand a chance. So what do we do? May I suggest to you, I don't know you that well, and that's one of the real advantages of preaching meetings, because <laughs> nobody can accuse me of picking on particular people. But I suggest to you in this audience this past week, there were plenty of you, probably well over half of you, that didn't open this book once. I hope you're an unusual group. There's plenty of groups I've been associated with for which that's the case. And you tell me you have the one thing in your heart, only one thing matters to you, and that's pleasing God, and you will not open His book every single day of your life. And fill yourself up with it. Don't tell me you're devoted to the one thing when you act like that. No judge who would look at this without prejudice would say that. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 4, when he said it is written, he then followed by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you see that? This is life or death, folks. We live by what proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's life or death. You believe that? I don't think we act like we believe that. 
And then in his second temptation, verse 7, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And in the third temptation, verse 10, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Every one of those quotes, interestingly enough, is from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Your favorite book in the Bible, isn't it? Most of you have no clue what's in Deuteronomy. Jesus knew a lot about what was in Deuteronomy. And he used it against Satan. It is a rich, powerful book. Are you filled up with it? A lot of interesting lessons from Jesus about being devoted to the Word of God. I want you to turn to Matthew 6 next. In Matthew the 6th chapter, verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you shut the door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You see that again? The test is, how am I by myself? In a room where nobody else is around, the door shut. It's private. And what you do there, ladies and gentlemen, this passage says, impacts the God of heaven. Because he sees in secret and rewards you openly. You see, that's what Dr. Hudson did. He did his good thing secretly. Wasn't out to be seen by everybody. Most folks never knew what happened. But God did. So I want to ask you, please, is it a pattern of your life, brother and sister, that you get yourself in a private place with God all the time, regularly? You can't stand to be without it? And I want to spend just a moment with you here showing you a couple of things about this point. In the first place, it is incredible that the God of heaven who created us and made man in his own image wants to be close to us. There is such a gulf between us in terms of his majesty and his power and his intelligence. For him to give us the time of day is incredible. And yet the Bible teaches in all of these passages that he wants to be close to this. I want to turn to one of you. You see the third one there, Revelation 3, verse 20? Would you take a moment and turn there with me? This is the last letter in this first, uh, second and third chapters of Revelation addressed to a church. You see, what's being said here by Jesus himself is being said to churches. That's us, folks. This is not being said to non-Christians. Notice verse 20 of Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Now, I want you to get that as graphically as I know how. I do not believe for one second he's talking about coming and having supper with us this afternoon, physically eating food. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying to every child of God, I'm knocking, are you going to let me in or not? If you'll pardon another little side trip, there is a gorgeous Romanian song that has been written that's called, I'm knocking. And it's written in their way they do things, with their kind of music. And every time we sang that song, I, I broke up. He's knocking on our door. Will you open? That's talking to Christian folk in Revelation 3, verse 20. What's he saying? I want to come in and eat with you. Will you open and let me in? I suggest everybody eats every day. I eat two or three times a day, don't you? That says to me, Jesus is asking to be with us every day. And do you realize, brother and sister in Christ, how many times you and I turn down the invitation of the God of heaven to come in and eat with us, dine with us, be close to us? How in God's name could anybody turn that down? And we do it all the time. And I'm convinced from Matthew 6, he's really wanting to meet us one-on-one -on -one in the private place. And he promises he'll be there. All we've got to do is open. So may I ask you, you don't have to answer. How many days this past week did you turn down the invitation of Christ to have a private meal with you by yourself? I will confess to you that for me, for too many years, as I was growing up, for too many years, there were too many days that went by where Christ did not come in and dine with me. I believe I have learned the critical importance so that for me, I will tell you, there is not one day that goes by anymore, not one, where I don't have a significant amount of time by myself, away from everybody. And I will tell you, if you don't pardon, please pardon the personal testimony, it's made all the difference. And it will for you. I cannot stress it too much. And the best way to stress it is to look what Jesus did. While he was a man on earth. So let's just flip through the book of Luke. I'm not going to take long on this, but it's worth your time. In my Bible, I have every one of these uh, circled just to remind me. Luke, the third chapter, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended. Do you know he was praying when he was baptized? He was. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 42. 
Now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. What you're going to see if you read the Gospels carefully is this is a pattern in the life of Jesus. He was with people a lot, but he didn't stay there. He went off by himself every chance he got. Luke 5, verse 16. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Chapter 6 and verse 12. It came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now, he didn't do that all the time, but he did at that time. And if you'll read on with me, you'll see what he did the next morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when it was day, he got off by himself and took a nap. Is that what yours says? No, it isn't what mine says either. That's why you need to get your Bible out and follow along. It says he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose twelve whom he named apostles. I know what he did all that night. He prayed most of that night about Peter. Simon, son of Jonah. I really don't know that. But don't you think he spent a lot of time that night talking about these disciples out of whom he would pick twelve who were going to be his representatives when he left? Chapter 9. And verse 18, 18 says, And it happened as he was alone praying, his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? I'll tell you what Jesus' reputation was. If you couldn't find him, the first thing they would think is he's off somewhere praying again. By himself. So may I ask you, Christian, is that your reputation? If somebody can't find you, is one of the first things they think, oh, he's probably off in his room praying. Verse 28. It came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up onto a mountain to pray. He clearly liked deserted places away from everybody. Sometimes he went by himself. Sometimes he took people with him. In this case, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. But why did they go up there together to pray, folks? May I beg of you in this church, would you consider two or three of you men make it a point that on some kind of a basis you do nothing but set aside a time where you get together and pray, three or four of you, be following this pattern and focus on this church and on your own lives. It's powerful. We had a group of ladies start doing that at where I worship. The elders didn't ask them to do it. They just saw so many things happening around the congregation and particularly Bible studies going on. They said, we need to get together and pray about that. And so they did. And the women brought lists of people who were being prayed, or who were being studied with, who folks needed to be praying for, and they got together on a Sunday evening after services and prayed for an hour. And I can tell you that the number of folks who became Christian multiplied. I don't know how you tie those things directly together. But it was a wonderful thing. And chapter 22, how would anybody prepare for the hardest thing that anybody has ever done? 
Verse 39 says, And coming out he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. It was nothing new for Jesus to be up on the side of the Mount of Olives. How do you think Judas knew right where to find him? He went up there a lot, by himself and with folks. In this case, he spent it in passionate prayer, begging God not to have to go. This was not Jesus, the Son of God. This was Jesus, the Son of Man. Who was being tempted. And he was off by himself. Let me tell you something, Christian. When the toughest times of your life come, the greatest challenges, the greatest disappointments, it is my hope and prayer you've already established such a relationship with the God of heaven that no matter what happens to you, you'll be in that private place and you will make that connection even stronger and the God of heaven will carry you through in ways you never dreamed. Because you've connected. And everything pales because you're on focus on the one thing and compared to that, nothing else matters. You believe it? I pray for congregations of saints who know who they are. I have, I think there's three more points. These are going to be really fast, folks. I pray for Christians who know who they are. First Corinthians, the first chapter says, some of you say you're of Paul, some of you are of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to all of those is no, no, no. I pray for saints who know who they are. May I be real? Will you listen to me very carefully? If I read my scriptures correctly, there's no such thing, beloved, as a Church of Christ Christian. Don't misunderstand me. God's people are referred to as Churches of Christ and as the Church of Christ. They're also referred to as the Church of God more times than they are the Church of Christ in the Scriptures. They're also referred to as the Church of the Firstborn Ones whose names are enrolled in heaven. But that's big for a sign. They're also referred to as the disciples of Christ, the temple of God, and lots of other designations. And in none of those instances is God intending for us to focus in on one and say, this is the kind of Christian I am. I'm a Church of Christ Christian. I've had folks tell me that. I was born Church of Christ, my folks are Church of Christ, and I'm dying Church of Christ. God help us. We're Christians serving the Lord and collectivities of, of us were called that. But that is not the name of God's people. It is a designation that tells who we belong to. I pray for folks who know who they are. And I pray that it's the one thing that keeps us where we belong. Folks, we'll take the gospel to the whole world. And that was our lesson this morning. 
And I pray for that. I pray for you to broaden your vision as I'm praying for me. And who love one another as Christ loved us, John 13. He said, that's how they'll know you're my disciples. If you love one another as I have loved you.